you'll remember that Canto 22 ended the, with them coming across this supernatural tree that's inverted in shape, is enjoying the waters of eternal life from Eden that are trickling down across of it, um, is full of fruit, and voice a voice had come from the tree, celebrating, I think, figures who knew how to relate well to earthly goods, particularly the things that you take in, food. Um, there was Mary, if you remember, who knew that the wine at the wedding in Cana was really celebrating God's divine abundance, not just having a good party. And Canto 23 begins with Dante peering into the tree, trying to, I guess, see where the voice has come from. And he's gently chastised by Virgil, who says, look, we're in purgatory, every moment counts. Um, you've got to work for your transformation, not just um, trying to unpick the spectacle, um, which may be rather fascinating, but ultimately is meaningless because what counts is what all this means for you. And I think that this whole canto really can be interpreted as revolving around Dante's ability to take in divine life, to feed from it, you might say, to become part of its flow even. And this being purgatory, it's about Dante cultivating his capability to do that in the preparation for paradise. And so at this moment when Virgil, who really fascinatingly he calls my more than father, in this canto, Virgil is very much depicted as the one who is well on the way to being transformed, well on the way to becoming capable of heaven. And Dante is very much in the one who's struggling and learning and wrestling with the push and pull of his hunger for God, which can easily slip into hunger for things um, of earthly life. He rejoins Virgil and Statius, who are still in their full communion, who are still enjoying the sustenance of their friendship, of their love, of their um, surprise at meeting each other, and of course of how they're sharing in the vision, I think, of God in their work that they saw differently in each other, um, as we've been discussing before. The friendship and the conversation between Virgil and Statius very much carries the presence of the lovely communion, the lovely feeding and sharing and enjoying of life um, that humans are capable of when they get it aright. And then they hear words that are going to echo throughout the canto. Um, they're from the psalm, O Lord, open our lips. And they echo through the canto because this is about having your will, your desire, your life aligned with God. So it's as if God is opening your lips, um, is opening, uh, is guiding your engagement with life. You've become a cooperator with the divine life and so are able to enjoy it freely and fully. The words are heard here by Dante in a bittersweet toning, a bittersweet song, because these souls are learning how to do that, having realised now that in life 
they kind of trained themselves, they became habituated to trying to take in things in the wrong way. And then they see the souls, they're approaching from behind them. Dante says that they looked like pilgrims who were keeping a silence as they walked on their way. And they just glanced towards Dante, particularly seeing that he was casting a shadow. But properly focused now, they glanced um, very briefly and looked back down again to focus on their own transformation. You know, they're not like Dante at the beginning of the canto who'd been staring in the tree trying to understand the spectacle. And these souls now are focused. But as they glance, Dante notices something else about them. He notices that their bodies are shrunken. They look as if they're starving. And this is the image that kind of haunts or simultaneously illuminates the meaning of this canto. And because these are the souls who in life overfed on the wrong things and are now learning how that actually left them, I think, starving inside. So their souls now show their true inner um, life, which was having been starved. It, it's described in a couple of really interesting ways. Um, one is that Dante says you could see the omo on their face. Um, and um, this, the word omo, O-M-O, um, it's that, that the two O's refer to the eye sockets and the M in the middle refers to the shape that the eyebrows, the no, nose ridge, the other eyebrow, and then the fall down by the side of the mouth looks like it's shaped like an M. Um, and um, omo is the word Latin for man, and um, it goes with the word dei, um, man in the image of God. And it was said that um, when you looked, say, at a skull and saw the Omo, you also saw how um, this individual was made in the image of God. And it's as if um, the, the pain of their starving state is also what reveals to them, so that you can see it written on their face, that they are actually made in the image of God. And that is what they're going to become capable of too, they're going to become capable of the divine presence once more. So that's one side, I think, of this image of the starving bodies. Another is given by two references that Dante the poet makes. He refers to the mythological figure of Erisichthon, who got stranded on the island of Ceres, where the goddess lived, and offended her by cutting down one of her sacred groves. And she condemned him to become so hungry that he ended up eating himself. And then the second allusion that Dante makes is to a figure called Mary, who in Josephus's account of the wars um, was said to have been left starving when Jerusalem fell and so cannibalised one of her sons. I think what these two grim illusions are referring to is that when we lose sight of the good, the beautiful and the true of the divine in life, we actually just end up consuming ourselves or those around us. So um, the trees are cut down, the sacred grove is cut down. Now you immediately think of the world's forests being cut down um, in the consumption of the modern 
human individual who doesn't know very clearly often it seems of that they're made in the image of God and that they're made to consume divine things and not just earthly things that they chew up in their need to find satisfaction but of course are actually consuming themselves as well um, as we gorge on nature around us. And then the second um, even more grim allusion to Mary who cannibalised her son in the destruction of Jerusalem. I guess that this refers to um, Jerusalem as the celestial city, um, as the city where God dwells, where God can be um, communed with, um, and that when that falls, we end up doing terrible things to each other as well, which are tantamount to cannibalising ourselves and each other. Um, so, you know, these two allusions point to the very grim side, um, the deeply existential um, cut-off side of this problem, when you don't know how to take in the sustenance of this life and realise that you need more than just material things to keep you alive. You know, man does not live on bread alone. Psychologically, um, the shrunken bodies are rather fascinating too. Um, in Western psychotherapy, um, a condition which you meet in people is people who aren't able to take in life um, and so get greedy, you might say. Um, whatever you offer is not quite enough. They get frustrated, they get angry, even hateful. Um, you know, a bit like the angry baby, they develop a habit of spitting out whatever food is offered to them through life. And that leaves them um, starving for love, for good things. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, um, these are referred to as the hungry ghosts. And they're depicted having very thin necks and extended bellies, extended hungry bellies. And the symbolism of the thin neck is that they can't get anything into them that's going to build them up, that's going to develop their souls, that's going to lead them to a richer life. So Dante here um, in the depictions of this canto is very much in that tradition, having that spiritual sight about what spiritual hunger really does to us and how trying to feast on that which can't sustain us, body, mind and spirit, horribly exacerbates that inner state. One of the souls who's passing then recognises Dante. He's called Ferrese Donati, and it turns out that he's a friend of Dante in life. It's very interesting that Dante can't recognise him from his features, so shrunken are they, but does recognise him by his voice, by what comes out of him, uh, how he speaks. And they have quite a long exchange. Um, it's touching. Um, there's a lot of compassion for each other. But it becomes clear in their exchange that I think the reason why this soul has appeared to Dante now is to remind him of a different kind of communion, a different kind of friendship that, you know, seemed jolly enough in life, but actually wasn't delivering the kind of sustenance which he's just been experiencing as he looked on Virgil and Statius. So there's a kind of comparison set up in the canto between Virgil and Statius, who we just imagine throughout 
um, are locked in joyful um, communion with each other, whereas now Dante is going to be remembering how his friendship with Ferese didn't really deliver that. There's allusions to how, for example, they got involved in a poetry competition where they heaped jibes upon one another, sort of fun enough in an artistic kind of way, um, but not building up, not really leading anywhere, um, just leaving them empty, I guess, at the end of the day, for all their wit and cleverness. Um, and also there's allusions to um, their love of women. Um, Ferese's wife um, is going to become important in a moment, um, but at this point in the canto there's an allusion to how Dante um, uh, pricked Ferese by saying that he left his wife cold in her bed, um, as if he went elsewhere for sexual delights. And the implication is that Dante might well have joined him in that as well. I think we can imagine Dante shocked and fearful that seeing the state of his friend now, with whom he'd shared this kind of empty life before, I guess he gets a glimpse of at least part of the state of his own soul and what must fill out um, if he is going to become capable of heaven. And then Ferese explains something about how this terrace of Mount Purgatory works and explains the significance of the tree they've seen and alludes to another tree that they're about to see in the next canto. Um, you know, it's nice because Dante had stared into the tree, um, beguiled by the spectacle, um, but soon enough he learns the real meaning of the tree. He does come to understand why it's there. Um, you know, that is divine generosity. It's not a kind of puritanism that wants you to stop eating. It wants to fill you with that which is truly nourishing. And Ferese explains um, that the trees produce these beautiful fruits, um, live from the waters of life, to remind them constantly of what they're purging here on the terrace. And it fills them with a mixture of pain, but then also solace. Ferese adds, because it's a reminder too of where they are headed, that they are made in the image of God, that they are capable of these things once they align their desire, their will, once their mouth can both take in but also praise um, and bless life around them so they can enjoy it fully. There's a pass, almost passing reference, which is very fascinating, to Christ on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lava samachthani, um, as uh, Dante the poet alludes to in the poem. And, you know, it makes you wonder why that's here. Now, commentators come up with various ideas. Um, one is to contrast the moment in Gethsemane, where you remember Christ prayed that the cup might be taken from him, that he wouldn't have to drink to take in um, its um, from the chalice of suffering and death. Um, and then he's succoured by an angel um, and turns and faces to crucifixion. Um, so he's an emblem of um, a soul who struggled with what he had to consume, but then accepted it. Um, and maybe, you know, there's something in that. But I wonder whether it's a second time 
where Dante's beginning his revision of the Passion. He's saying that Christ actually wasn't a sacrifice who shed his blood for us in this rather grim, automatic, vengeful gods kind of way. Nor was he quite, I think, just an exemplar who kind of showed us morally the right way to go, though there's no doubt something in that. But this is Christ who actually shows us the way, who shows us how to undergo our own passion, our own cleansing, to plunge into the depths of our personal, social, spiritual reality in order that we can see it all and that descent can become an ascent as indeed the cross was. So the significance of these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me here, is that this is Christ in another way being said to have gone to the depths, even to the depths of hell, being cut off from God, you know, as Satan was. But that was what made for his new life that then broke out into the world. We'll see how that develops as we continue to rise. Um, back to the canto, and Dante then turns to his friend again and says, look, to be honest with you, I'm kind of amazed you're here. Um, because you did leave, lead this quite reprobate life that I shared much with you, and I would have expected you to be much further down in purgatory, um, if not in the other place. And Ferrazzi explains why he's so high up here on Mount Purgatory, because of his tremendous wife, Nella, who, although he rather turned his back on her, didn't know how to enjoy what you might say could be called the communion of the marriage bed with her. Um, she nonetheless really loved him and has prayed for him, her love for him has continued um, and now Ferezi finds that he's able to take that love in, he's able to joy, enjoy that communion, he has got within him to um, share and participate in that love. And so that's why he finds himself now here on Mount Purgatory. Um, there was, you might say, a part of his soul that means that he can be capable of undergoing what is required of him now and not having to spend decades and centuries further down in Purgatory getting himself ready for that. And it turns out that he died just about five years before this time um, and hence Dante's somewhat surprise. Um, Ferrazzi then utters a prophecy about Florence. Um, you know, he, like many of the souls, um, he can see snatches of the future, um, particularly when they resonate with his own past life. And in this case, Ferrazzi prophesies that within the next 10 or 15 years, um, Dante may even himself hear the reports of how Florence has renewed its own gluttony. In this case, Ferrazzi talks about men gorging on women's bodies. Um, I guess that's because partly what he understood in life and so he can see it unfolding into the future. And then Ferrazzi asks Dante, the living Dante, how come he's here? And towards the end of the canto, Dante gives one of the fullest accounts, actually, of how he had woken up when the moon was shining high in the forest and has now been guided through hell 
and is on his ascent now up Mount Purgatory, um, his mouth now is able to speak um, the words of praise, praising the blessing that he's received, both from the descent, you notice, and the ascent. He is able to speak words that show how he is now becoming much more capable of taking in life aright, which means understanding it, being glad of it, um, his will and desire conforming to what's actually happened to him, you know, as is appropriate here in Purgatory and particularly in this canto with his themes of how to take in life, how to absorb it, um, how not to become confused and distracted um, to those things that can't actually sustain you, body, mind and soul. And very interestingly, at the end of his account here, Dante actually names Virgil, perhaps not so surprising, but he hasn't actually used Virgil's proper name before to this point. Um, I think it's um, the appropriate praise for Virgil, giving him his true name um, as Virgil himself continues to guide Dante as his more than father. But also Dante names Beatrice. And this is really significant because when the name of Beatrice has been uttered by Virgil before on Mount Purgatory, it's really rather thrown Dante. Whereas here, he's now able to utter that tremendous name, tremendous to him, without becoming overwhelmed. He is able to relate to it properly, you might say. He's able to take it in, to feel its fullness, all that it promises to him, but kind of hold on to the word himself, make it part of himself, uh, not have it come tumbling, confused, out of his mouth, um, because he's not really able to take it in. So it's a rather lovely end to the canto that the name of Beatrice is spoken by Dante, showing that he's, at least in this moment, becoming aligned to all that's divine, becoming more capable of paradise. But they're going to say more in the next canto, so I shouldn't bite off more than I can chew, think I've digested and understood what is coming through in this canto more than I have, but with Dante the Pilgrim, continue on this steady step-by-step -step transformation.